Welcome everybody, thank you very, very much for coming. I see it's uh, five past four, so we'll, we'll get going. Oh, it's five, isn't it? Five past five. So, normally as a chair I wouldn't prepare anything, but today I prepared a little bit, so I'm going to read it out to you, just so I can be a proper chairman for once. So the average hours worked by full-time and part-time workers in Australia has increased steadily over the last 30 years. In line with this and other socioeconomic changes, the amount we spend on bought food or food bought and consumed outside the home has similarly increased. We now apparently spend around $70 a week or a third of our weekly food spend in cafes, takeaways and restaurants. In some, the most recent nutrition data that I could find says that Australians eat around 290 million hamburgers, 444 million serves of chips, 115.6 million serves of sushi, 177 million pies and 108 million donuts every year. That sounds like a lot to me. Um, so clearly some of us uh, eating junk food out of the home. We buy our lunch because it's convenient, because of our busy schedules and family lifestyles and because food has never been cheaper, more convenient and more abundant. There's food everywhere we go, including in our schools, our universities and our workplaces. We've never had so much choice in what we eat or where we eat. But, and this is the question that we'll look at here tonight, is it simply a matter of choice and free will or do others bear some responsibility? Today you'll hear from three great speakers who will discuss, that will discuss whether administrators and employers should accept or take some responsibility for what we're eating at our workplaces and in our schools and universities. So the first of our speakers will be Associate Professor Teresa Davis. Teresa researches children as consumers and in particular the relationship between advertising and marketing of food. She co-leads the Business of Health Research Network within the Business School and the Australian Food Society and Culture Network at the University of Sydney. Then we'll hear from Ali Howes uh, Ellie is a public health professional. She coordinates the Healthy Sydney University initiative uh, and she's currently undertaking a PhD in the School of Public Health and the Charles Perkins Centre here at the uni. And then Tom Fry. Tom uh, is a Sydney University alumni and now works at the AMP Workplace Environment and Wellbeing in Tom is involved in the AMP's commitment to create a sustainable workplace and experience that improves the life of AMP's people. So you'll hear from Teresa from the primary school to Ali to the universities and then Tom to the workplace and they'll be speaking about the choices that we make and the choices that we're given um, for the food that we eat at lunch in the workplace in our schools. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, as Brian said, I'm Teresa, and I'm from uh, for my since I'm in the business school, and my perspective on food and marketing to children is is slightly different from the conventional business school take, I suppose. Um, I am just going to talk a little bit about, I'm going to run you through quite a few slides because I have a lot of images and I know I have only 10 minutes, but I just want you to get a quick look at some of these images because part of what I want to say towards the end is really based on some of these uh, images I want to put in front of you. So uh, if I go a little quickly, maybe I can come back to the images later, but I just wanted to sort of put it, go through it very quickly. Um, I have been looking at uh, the way the marketing, how uh, marketing of food is directed at children and particularly at young children and looking at the relationship between uh, the idea of 
well, free choice, how free are children to make choices, how capable are they of making um, healthy choices, and are we really giving, is it really a level playing field in terms of uh, how children make choices and how their parents are making choices for them. Um, the epidemic of childhood obesity, I won't even waste time on that because everybody knows all about it. We're sitting in a center which really is here because of this epidemic and particularly related to uh, young people. Um, I just wanted to point out there's a huge amount of media discourse around this idea of childhood obesity and I just put up a few headlines there for you to get a sense of what this is about. So the discourse is largely about um, obesi how obesity is in childhood is really related to how little parents have control over this, or how little parents are making healthy and sensible choices for their children. And now a number of these headlines are a little bit skewed towards saying, you know, well, mothers aren't making the right choices for their children. So are working women's women to blame for childhood obesity, as Time magazine asks? And Indian mothers are blamed for, uh, bl for spreading childhood obesity, eating your feelings, your mom might be to blame. Um, so there is a general theme happening here. And of course the scientific evidence does kind of back this. There are associations between children's appetitive traits and their uh, maternal feeding practices, uh, the scientists tell us. There's a consumption of unhealthy food by Brazilian children is influenced by their mother's educational level. So hey, you know, mothers ought to get more educated. Um, childhood obesity epidemic is a result of non-genetic uh, evolution, the maternal resources hypothesis in Mayo Clinic proceedings and so on. So the general theme, you get the general drift of what's going on here, which is maternal blame. So there is quite a fit, b bit of work, for instance, Warren Zickowick and uh, more and Malik look at the idea that obesity is being constructed in the social, uh, in, in media as a sort of parenting issue. So it is really the parents' fault for not taking care of uh, their children, feeding them correctly, and making the right choices for them. And in 2010, there was actually this sign on the side of a London uh, bus which said, working mothers, fat moms set the trend, Korean moms make bad moms, and it was all related to the childhood obesity issue. So this is sort of, I mean, you wouldn't think this is a sign you'd see in 2010 on the side of a bus, but there you go. Um, 2006, there was a big Romash um, uh, furore over parents who were feeding their children through the uh, bars of the gates because the school had said they wouldn't allow any um, any food brought from home and that the children would have to eat in the school food that is standardized meals cooked in schools and there was a, this particular image was beamed around uh, and it was a very particular image it shows what is being constructed as an overweight read irresponsible mother with bad eating habits who is feeding her child a burger through the through the uh, bath because she things they won't eat healthy food that's being offered to them in schools. So there is this general theme of somehow the parents are to blame here. And if you ask mothers, and there's quite a bit of work around what mothers think about this, you, you get the sense that mothers are worried, concerned, you're constantly anxious, and I know I've been there a while ago, but you know we've been there, done that uh, anxious lunch packing time when you're making sure everything that goes in the lunch box is healthy and nutritious and will be eaten, etc. So the sense of anxiety around the packing the lunch box has become rather obvious here. And parents have spoken of the sense of surveillance, they're worried about what people will think about what they put in their children's lunch boxes, they're being judged based on what, is, what are the feeding practices of children and so on. Canadian mother was fined for a bad lunch box. Um, this was this, this is a true story. Uh, she didn't have a grain item, whole grain item in the lunchbox. She was fined for it and the school supplemented the lunchbox and then she was fined for it. Um, and um, the Gold Coast Bulletin, not a, I mean, not a great source of telejournalism, but still, you, you generally get the sense of what these um, media headlines are about. Lazy mothers are stuffing their lunch boxes and there is a lunchbox whisperer in case you want to learn how to pack your uh, children's lunch boxes properly. Um, and mothers really need to pick up their game and, you know, provide something like this. Um, 
So the idea that somehow mothers are equipped, are educated enough, are, have all the resources in terms of time and money and the understanding of nutrition and nutritional standards to make a lunchbox like this every single day in the morning before they go off to work or do whatever else they do um, is, is generally the discourse. So, you know, there are fantastic ideas here. I'm, I've never really seen one of these in anybody's, uh, uh, in a child's lunchbox, but apparently some people do. Uh, but the point I'm trying to make is this is, that's, that's what we are, we are being told we should be doing. On the other hand, I want to point out that on the side of marketing, there is this huge machinery that is sort of pushing a lot of other kinds of foods in, in as being appropriate choices. And, and they have an inordinate amount of um, reach in terms of getting to not just the parents, but the children here. And I've just, just some of the work that I've done is looking at uh, branded food apps and advogames and looking at how they actually get to speak to children directly in the online space. And if you think about, these are just four examples I pulled out of branded apps which uh, use the brand, as you can see. There are three brands there, very well known to most of you. Uh, and these are games that are played by children. They're very inane games, but they sort of, um, in one minute of play, you see the brand being displayed about 200 times in the, in the Chapa Chap one, for instance. So what you're saying is that the child is exposed to a particular food brand over and over and over again. And it's, it's a free game. You download from the iTunes uh, shop and you play it over and over again. And what it means is that children are being exposed to that kind of advertising without very possibly the parents have been knowing about it. Because, you know, young children do download these things from the iTunes um, shop and do, do play them. And there are a lot of implications of where that's coming from. So what we did do uh, was look at what is happening in that online space and how advertisers are getting to children. And a lot of what we found is the brands being positioned as a sort of educator, telling the children stories about the brand, but it also does things like using the brand as a social enabler. So the idea of Cadbury's here saying, you know, look, tag your friends with the flavor you think they you know, like best or it reminds you most of them. And what it does is it has a sort of multiplicative effect. You target one child and the child is sort of connecting you to their friends on Facebook who then connect you, the, the brand to uh, their friends and so on and so forth. So what you're saying is that online there is this sort of access um, to children and to a consumer segment that normally most food manufacturers would not have that kind of direct connection with. And yes, of course, Facebook, you've got to be 13 to have a uh, Facebook account. Uh, but I don't know if anybody knows 13-year-olds who don't have a Facebook account, maybe one or two, but most of them do. So, you know, it's a sort of a, a silly argument here. Um, there is this idea of personifying the brand, so this uh, making the brand a person who speaks directly to the child. And if you think about how these things work, it's almost establishing a direct connection to the child. And there are more examples of that, and this is a, a sort of collage that pulled out a few examples of how this does happen. So you get a lot of free market research, you know, you ask kids what flavors they would like, uh, a lot of cross-promotion happening, tag your family, uh, all those in your family who like Pringles, so then you're getting information about not just the child, but the family around. Um, there are, and if you look at the number of likes and shares that are happening, there is this huge effect, uh, you know, a networking kind of effect. And the company then has access to a lot of information, including private information about children. Um, these are kind of promotions that are run online. You take a picture of yourself with Mr. Pringle, you turn up, you know, at a particular location that Mr. Pringle has uh, turned up at, and you take a picture and post it on Facebook. Now, immediately you see the problems here with privacy issues. So there's a lot of this going on, and the point I'm trying to make really is that this is a hugely unregulated digital space where marketers have free access and really are connecting with children in a very direct way. So on one hand, you have parents being blamed for not uh, doing the right thing, not understanding, not providing proper nutrition for their children. 
On the other hand, you have marketers running free and having access to children, which I think in, you know, in the pre-digital uh, era, we would have serious trouble with. But here, nobody's even, nobody's even really thinking about it, I suspect. So ultimately, what we're saying is there's a huge marketing machinery here, which is weighting the choices of children and parents in a particular direction. So it's really hard to say a parent with very little resources compared to a marketing machinery of this size and the kind of advertising spend that's happening here is you know, unimaginable. Um, and also, the, uh, the digital space is quite a cheap space in which to do advertising. It's not like the old days where you ha actually had to spend a lot of money to place an ad on TV or uh, mass media. So it becomes a sort of wallpapering effect for the child. So you have an environment where the child is constantly being bombarded with messages. So how in this environment do you expect that you know we're going to parents and children are going to be able to make the right choice? So. Um, some of the arguments, so clearly my argument is that there should be more regulation of this kind of space, especially around advertising of food to children. That's the only way we're going to make the job easier for parents. Um, Elliot and Cook talk about a number of myths that you know, industry kind of pops up and uh, counter-argues every time there's talk about regulating uh, digital advertising especially. Uh, but really this idea that children are more sophisticated these days and can interpret advertising messages so you know they're not fooled by any of this is a complete myth because if you look at some of the examples on Facebook that I was showing you, it's very clear that they are being drawn in. And you know, if everything we know about you know, psych psych cognitive psychology tells us that children do not process information the same way that adults do. And, and when it comes to the internet, it's a wild west out there. You can't stop children from being targeted with online uh, ads. It's a global space. Um, these are the arguments you hear constantly. But hey, companies that geogate their content, for instance, things like music downloads, are very carefully controlled, right? I mean, privacy happens, but still, they do control some of the downloads. So I don't see why it can't be done when it comes to advertising. Um, so some of these things are issues. So, so the question really becomes, why is there a sort of an unspoken consensus about blaming the consumers rather than blaming the marketers or, or governments about regulation? I think it's because it's an easy choice. Blaming parents makes it, uh, sort of takes the responsibility away from governments who have to otherwise make difficult choices and face up to powerful lobbying groups and say, hey, no, we've got to do this. Um, and, you know, parents are easy targets, I think, in, in the blame game. So I think it's also the idea of responsibilizing the individual consumer, saying, okay, each of you has got to be responsible for what you eat and make the right choices rather than us making it easier for you in terms of regulation or in terms of marketers regulating themselves. It happens everywhere. For instance, um, Trade agreements don't help the matter, right? Look at uh, the CAFTA, for instance. In El Salvador, a bottle of Coke is cheaper than a bottle of water. And there's reason for that, because Coke's got control of most of the good sources of water, and they're bottling it. So if, if Coke is cheaper than water, and you're a poor person, a poor parent, the choice is clear. I mean, you, you buy a Coke. And that has incalculable uh, effect on ch childhood obesity or, and childhood health in the long term. So how free is the Salvadorian consumer to choose, is my question. Um, the parent, parent doesn't have a choice, and uh, the child has even less choice. And if we're saying water as a basic, basic commodity is going to be branded and sold, then you know, this, is, this is an issue. It is a, it is a global issue. And the inertia of governments in this, it's much, much, much easier to say the consumer's individual responsibility, let's educate them and let's blame parents for the food choices, which is kind of what's happening is, you, you see this in the discourse all the time. And the assumption is that parents are capable, they have all the information, they have the education, they have the material resources, and the creativity to make all of this more appealing than a, market, a company that's marketing on a huge marketing budget. And that is an almost impossible task. So really what we're saying is let's blame the consumer. So there is a whole responsabilization happening and it's the problematization of the consumer rather than saying, hey, the problem is really with the marketing system or with, or with governments who can't be 
bothered, say that there are strong lobbies against this, um, you know, are just making sure they're getting back into power next time around, and so on and so forth. Um, so really it comes back to this question of, and the other favorite chestnut, right, that uh, industry pulls out of the hat every time you talk about regulation is the nanny state. And my question is really, why are we so afraid of nannies? I mean, I would be far more afraid of, you know, the predator out there, um, if, you, if you want to conceptualize it like that. And if you want to frame it in terms of the sort of rights of the child, which is increasingly being done in legal circles, there is a big push to sort of think about this uh, as arguing it as a fundamental right of a child to be healthy and have healthy food choices. Um, so really, why is regulation such a bad thing if it's protecting a child? Um, why do we shout nanny state every time uh, the, the government moves to make any kind of regulation happen? And so really, if you're talking about nanny states, uh, my argument is that a nanny is more benign in their intent than uh, anyone out there. So why not? Or at least in terms of the Australian context where there's so little regulation out there. Um, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't be talking regulation. And a Canadian study um, asked parents what they thought of increased food marketing regulation and the majority felt more regulation would make their jobs easier. And I, I suspect that Australian uh, parents, the little we've asked them through the parents' jury, what was the parents' jury, it's now the parents' voice, um, forums like that, they do say the same thing. If we knew, if we knew everything we ought to know, then it would be easy task. But not knowing that, regulation would make it much easier for us. So that is it, really. I kind of rushed you through that, but thank you. I should say that, that each of the speakers will speak for 10 to 15 minutes, and then they'll all come up here and we'll be able to have a, a question and answer session with them. Thanks very much, Teresa. Ellie. Okay. All right, I might have to move this up a little bit. Thanks, Teresa. Um, I'm actually going to be following on from a few of the things you talk about in terms of choice and regulation when it comes to the university environment. Um, so thanks, Brian, Luke and the Institute for the invitation to speak today. And I'm just going to give a brief outline of my interests when it comes to food and talk a bit about um, some examples that we've been doing at the University of Sydney but first, I did want to explain my background, as I think it will help you in understanding why I think about food and health in the way I do. So I did my honours in Gender and Cultural Studies, and I notice um, Elspeth is sitting right there, and she'll love the next slide that I put up. Um, and then I did a Master's of Public Health, and for over two years I've been working at the university on our um, health-promoting <coughs> university project. Um, so my first slide is... Um, some of you might be familiar with this work. It's kind of one of the seminal texts you study as sociology and gender and cultural studies students but I wanted to start off with this slide because this book hugely influenced me but it's also because I think actually the study and the critique of everyday life is really important if you are like me interested in the interactions between people and place and I guess I'm interested in what kinds of behaviours, social norms and interactions do we exhibit as individuals in particular settings and how are certain structures and systems of power played out in our everyday lives, so the everyday activities and things that we do. And then how are our food choices, food and eating as being something we have to do several times a day, how is that predetermined by these structures and systems? And I guess there are many theories about how this happens, but I want to present a very simplified perspective um, which around food choices, behaviours and habits. And I guess... I put this up there because I came across it and I thought, look, if Ryan Gosling is really confused, um, you know, walking down a supermarket aisle and not knowing what to choose if he wants to choose anything, then, you know, I think we all have those same kinds of problems. Um, but I just wanted to kind of talk about this notion of the kind of the self, the individual, the society, the, the social norms that we, um, we practice with each other. Um, through our social relationships and interactions, and then obviously the settings, so the environments in which we find ourselves. And I'm sure Luke sitting up the back will say, what about systems? Yes, we can talk about systems, complex systems as well. So my public health training background um, tells me that we've actually spent a lot of time um, developing interventions to promote health for individuals. Is, does this have a thingy on it? Oh, which... 
Oh, not this one. Okay. Well, we spend a lot of time in that self, in the individual space, um, even though we know nine times out of ten the interventions we've designed actually don't really do anything, i.e. they fail. So educating or building personal skills requires actually quite a high level of agency um, and engagement. But building those skills and making healthier choices actually requires a supportive setting and environment and a society in which to exist. So we know now that multi-layered interventions which encompass the self, the society and the setting are actually what drives improve, improvements in people's health. And there's lots of examples about this when it comes to pr products like tobacco. But how do we do this when it comes to food? So I just wanted to now talk a bit about um, higher education settings and talking about the example we've developed at Sydney Uni in terms of promoting a healthy food environment and changing the conversation around food. And I think for me this comes from the fact that the University of Sydney is actually a major leader in education and research. And there's this interesting challenge we have that we have this amazing building which is looking at um, solving these issues of obesity, cardiovascular disease and diabetes but then our own university environment supports a range of uh, very unhealthy behaviours by our students and staff. So, for example, good old Red Bull van um, coming onto campus, you know, our um, food, and then good old Manning Bar and the you know, readily and cheaply available alcohol at discounted prices and then um, the fact that we're sitting down all day. And I think sometimes there's a bit of a rift between what we preach as staff and students in our education and our research and then what we actually practice in our everyday lives on campus. So I mentioned just before about the fact that our campus food outlets and vending machines promote the similar types of ultra-processed foods, energy-dense foods that are promoted in other settings in supermarkets, um, petrol stations, basically everywhere, football stadiums. I've always loved that interesting thing of you go and watch people work really, really hard on a footy field for two hours and meanwhile you drink you know, litres of beer and have several meat pies and so on. So I think we have a bit of a normalising culture around products that contribute to poor health. So the kinds of foods and drinks that I mentioned and also the fact that we are actually really highly sedentary now and we do very little physical activity. So since 2012, at the University of Sydney, we've been working with staff and students to develop what we call a health-promoting university here. And a health-promoting university recognises that universities and higher education institutions um, have a huge influence um, on all walks of life. And we're really significant contributors to social good and we produce graduates as leaders, or at least that's what the University of Sydney branding wants you to believe. Um, so the question becomes, how do we actually use that influence and reach to better support and promote health? And what kind of environments should our staff and students expect on our campuses? So at the small level, Healthy Sydney University has been working with the major food providers to improve the food offerings, which is a very slow process. And we know that through the surveys of our staff and students that many, every, many people eat on campus on a regular basis and they're often in a rush. So that means that a lot of the time when we choose our, our food and drink products on campus, we're very much driven by the four Ps, or I think it's become seven Ps or something now, which is around product, price, promotion and place. So those things are all really important and actually when we're making a choice, are we really making a free choice? Um, so staff and students have also told us about wanting more healthy and fresh food on campus, particularly after hours. So we've worked with um, a, a catering company to uh, develop a healthy vending machine which we've been trialling out at Cumberland campus and this is around um, offering salads and um, fresh juices to people at a good price um, and that are available 24-7. We've also been working to develop some catering, healthier catering guidelines and also, and also support the ongoing um, you're, you're frowning, Brian. This is, this is the community garden, yeah. Although this was taken, I think, last year sometime. So we've continued to support um, having a community garden on campus, which we think is really important. And then also other ways we can promote people to eat healthier. For example, handing out free fruit during libraries and exams. Um, we started doing that this year and I think that that was a really, a really good thing to do. But the challenge I think that we have is that the university isn't a bubble and we're influenced as much as any other setting by large commercially processed food and beverage companies 
And these companies pay a huge amount of money to our student union to heavily promote their products during key periods on campus. And I suppose you have to kind of ask why, but any savvy marketer would say, well, we've got a large number of young adults here um, who are at a high income inner city university and this represents a really big booming market for our products. And I guess when we think about young adults here at university, um, you know, we sort of go through this, this, this transition from dependence to independence, from childhood and adolescence to what has now been coined as emerging adulthood. So these are the perfect, we're, we're the perfect market to reach through advertising activations on campus, freebies at every point in the semester, particularly during exam times, and you know, running cool social media trends and posts. And you know, as someone who I guess is kind of coming out of emerging adulthood, um, there's actually really nothing more exciting than being able to come to university and buy and do whatever you want at any time because you can and there's no parent to nag you about, oh, you shouldn't eat that. There's no teacher to say, no, you have to wear your hat um, or it's no hat, no play. You can actually do whatever you want. So this is where my PhD research comes in. I'm very interested in why um, young adults make particular choices about food on campus and then what drives these choices and behaviours. So what kinds of social norms exist around Red Bull and exam time? Um, and is university simply another place where the social trends of fancy burgers and boutique Mexican soft drinks are reiterated and reinforced? And this is where I'd probably diverge a bit from what Teresa was talking about. And I think one of the challenges for public health in Australia has been we've very much gone down the route of focusing on how we can provide supportive environments and settings for children, hence the interest in lunchboxes, junk food advertising during children's TV and so on. But the challenge then is that adults tend to be forgotten, particularly young adults. And I guess I want to pose that question of do adults require supportive social norms and settings for health, particularly around food? And I would argue yes. And this was one of the comments that came out of um, a, survey, a recent survey we ran about sugary drinks on campus and it kind of su it suggests to me that we are actually very happy for those individual level interventions, even though we know they don't work, um, and we're kind of ever wary of the encroaching nanny state and the regulation of particular products in university environments. And I, I think it sort of suggests a perceived limit um, for a university in terms of promoting health. We're very happy to do our research around diabetes and obesity, but we will continue to promote ice cream, um, you know, donuts from donut time, um, Nutella, um, which the University of Sydney's marketing team helpfully promoted as well, <laughs> um, and, you know, continue to do things like where we run, you know, fresh fruit interventions making sure that the chips and the chocolates are located in front of the, fr the fresh fruit. Um, you know, we just want to make sure that our staff and students are educated enough, right, to make the healthier choice. Um, but it actually belies the fact that our choices, you know, and these are all really good examples, they've often been predetermined by existing commercial contracts and arrangements like the ones I outlined earlier. So, in summary, I'd argue that universities and higher education institutions are actually really important settings for changing our culture around food. And I would end by kind of um, asking the question, if a highly educated population in an institution like ours, which prides itself on health and medical research and evidence, if a population like ours doesn't support change to the food environment, then I'd kind of ask, well, who who, who actually will? So, um, I'll, thanks, I'll give thanks to um, a whole bunch of people's photos that I stole slash borrowed um, from Emma Sainsbury at the Bowdoin Institute and Ali Jones at the George Institute. So, thank you. All right, thank you very much, Ali. Tom, you're next. Hi everyone, my name's Tom. I'm the Workplace Environment Wellbeing Manager at AMP and continuing on from what Ellie spoke about of food in, at university, I'll be talking about food in the workplace and what I wanted to spend the next 10 minutes talking to you about was, is, is our journey, AMP's journey, what we've done in the past, what we do now and what we might expect to see in the future or what I personally hope to see in the future. Um, 
So AMP has had an interesting history from yesterday to today. We've seen a broad spectrum of um, employee food offerings from subsidised dining and roving tea trolleys when our, our building went up in 1962 when it was first opened to a more decentralised sort of food approach in the late 70s and 80s with the completion of AMP Tower. That's the tall um, one in the back there, um, which, which, came, which brought with it commercial food courts um, and then later on vending machines across our, our offices on all of our floors. Um, but most recently, we've undergone a 14-floor refurbishment project at our circular key building, which we've called Sparkitecture. And that essentially describes our transition, please don't judge me on the corporate buzzwords, um, which describes our transition to activity-based working. So that's essentially away from one-to-one -one desks, not fully the hot desking, but to a collaborative work environment, but also the changes in the work behaviours that we expect that underpin using that workspace. Um, and health and wellbeing is a fundamental consideration in our workplace design and engagement. So we've got 100% sit-to-stand workstations across our 14 floors. Um, we've also taken advantage of the fact that we're a sole tenant in a building and we've got interconnecting stairs. And so we've run campaigns in the past such as Stair Crazy, which coincides with Steptember to encourage people to use the stairs. Um, and we've also designed a whole heap of um, collaboration spaces that are specifically designed to be used standing up. So all of these sort of health and wellbeing kind of elements of the new workplace have been underpinned by a workplace charter that employees sign up to um, when they actually move onto the floor and part of that is about caring for yourself and caring for the community. We've also been particularly mindful um, of adequately providing enough kitchen space and breakout facilities to support food at work. Um, so what we need to consider there is adequate seating for floor residents so we have the capacity to deal with people when they want to eat in the workplace. Also adequate cold storage so we have the fridge space and the freezer space so when people want to bring in their foods they can do that. Also adequate pantry storage um, and the associated behaviours that we expect when people store their food so it's sort of appropriately so not to contaminate others. Um, and also a whole range of other small appliances such as microwaves and sandwich presses and that sort of thing, just to, and zip units also to offer children boiling water to give people what they need to sort of eat on a BYO kind of level when they come into the workplace. But we also recognise that we have a combination of people who BYO their lunch and also buy from the food court. Um, and while nutrition is important, it is equally important to consider the social nature of lunch and the opportunity it creates to strengthen um, or create new relationships in the workplace. And we've been very mindful of that in creating these spaces, not only to cater to people nutritionally with the food that they bring in, but also maintaining that sense of community on a floor. Now that Sparkitecture is complete, we're evolving our understanding of workplace wellbeing in our newly formed team called Workplace Experience. Um, and the environment and wellbeing plays a fundamental strategic pillar in our workplace strategy moving forward. And our vision is for a sustainable workplace that cares for the environment and helps improve the wellbeing of our people, inspiring them to be their best self in the workplace and beyond. So we aim to deliver this by a few things. Um, so the first thing, we're sort of following the well-building standard, which is a new standard out of um, the States. It's a medical evidence-based building rating scheme that rates both design and performance. Um, it's similar to Green Star, but it effectively just focuses on occupants, health and wellbeing, and for the most part is agnostic on the environment. And as you'll see on that um, picture over there, nourishment is a fundamental element within this rating um, framework, and it sets out a number of preconditions and optimizations around what food can be sold in the workplace, how food is advertised, and what information is available to occupants of the space. Then using that as our frame moving forward, um, we're trialling a healthy snack vending offering to our staff, and that's all about our test and learn philosophy, is just understanding if there's a cultural appetite at AMP, particularly in this building, because we need to remember that also given the location that we're at, we also have a lot. We have the food court downstairs to compete with, we have an IGA locally, and we also have a heap of restaurants and fast food down around the circular key. 
So we just need to be mindful and we're measuring that effectively on the number of vends per day by partnering with um, a small start-up who's um, got these great combination snack and drink machines. Um, in partnership with the um, Faculty of Architectural Sciences here at UCID, we are deploying indoor environmental quality sensors um, to help us test various tenant interventions, particularly when it comes to air quality, so we're testing indoor plants. But what's interesting about that is it also gives us access to the BOSA survey, um, and the BOSA survey basically assesses occupant perceptions of the workplace, and part of that is percentage of breakout areas. And what the research shows us is that people don't mind so much if they're going into a non-territorial workspace, it's they're more concerned about the breakout areas and the facilities that they can use. And then finally, I've got up there a picture of SISU. So we've partnered with a um, corporate insurance team to roll out these um, self-health assessment machines. And they're, they're effectively um, a high-tech version of the old um, scales and height thing that you used to see in shopping centres that you pay a dollar for, because it also does your body fat, um, it gives you your BMI, and it also gives you blood pressure um, and your resting heart rate. And then that gives you um, access to an online portal where you can track your results as you test yourself um, over time and it also provides you with opportunities to develop meal planners and personalised meal planners um, to suit your tastes. So that's essentially what we're doing now and we think that using those different elements will really help us within that sort of well-building framework, whether or not we go to certification is sort of a discussion for another day because it is very much in its early days, but many of the principles in it hold true and we're trying to hold... Um, Trying, trying to test to see if most of them are feasible, particularly in the environmental context. Um, so what next? Um, my thoughts on what we can expect to see sort of in workplaces moving forward is a bit of a resurgence of the subsidised um, dining services or free meals in the workplace. Um, you hear a lot about tech startups and the Googles of the world offering um, free lunches and dinners to their staff. Um, I'm, I remain a little bit sceptical about that because um, I'm also conscious that we don't want to tie people to the workplace. It's equally important that they get out and about and walk around and if that does mean going down and walking around Circular Quay to find some lunch, well, that's incidental exercise and that's a good thing. Um, the advent of well-building will also require both tenants and landlords in commercial buildings to put restrictions on the foods that are sold in food courts, um, which brings up sort of interesting parallels with the concept of green leasing. So while we have clauses in leases that sort of set up the principles and practices around tenants and landlords engaging to, ma uh, to achieve maximum energy efficiency in a building, we can do the same for a tenant as in a retail tenant with the commercial building owner. And the well building also brings with it a whole list of other requirements and optimizations around um, outside herb gardens and access to outdoor areas um, and we've seen on some sites who have gone down the well, well building pathway such as um, Macquarie Bank, they have a herb garden on their roof as well as beehives. Um, future technology solutions will no doubt play a role um, as we've seen a bit with the SISU self-health check machines, they have online services which provide people the opportunity to create their own meal planners. Um, but it's also about how we can actually use technology and some behavioural science to help people make better choices throughout the day. Um, so one interesting um, thing that I heard not that long ago actually was that if people make, a, make their decision for lunch at breakfast time when they're not feeling hungry close to lunch, they'll actually make a better choice. So if you actually provide avenues that allow people to pre-order their lunch at breakfast as soon as you step into the workplace, they're more likely to make healthier um, food choices when it comes to lunch. Um, and I also thought it was interesting, um, Theresa mentioned earlier about gamification and how um, some of the junk food companies use, the, use that as a way to entice um, people. Gamification is also gaining momentum in the workplace and how we engage people both on environmental matters and wellbeing. And I think we have to make sure we, we, we equally use the things that make us do bad things to do good things as well. That's, thank you. So now we've got some time, 40 minutes, for Q&A. Thank you, and thank you for an excellent presentation, very informative. 
My my question is, I think, following on from the last one and is primarily directed at Tom. Tom, a lot of the environment that you talked about within AMP and the things that AMP are doing largely relate to the physical environment and the building, etc., and the appliances and the things they're putting into those buildings, which are very, very important to create the right atmosphere. My question is, what are they actually doing in relation to the person, the self? And things like, are they building into their key performance indicators, things like, you must get out and take a certain amount of break every day. You must start. You must leave the office by a certain time. Are you encouraging things by saying, look, there's a step competition. You must take so many steps a day. And doing those sorts of things that relate to the individual and are actually built into their key performance indicators and built into perhaps their reward systems. Yeah, thank you. It's a great question. Um, because the, the team that I work in, we're workplace experience, so we're basically solely responsible for the delivery of an accommodation strategy and the physical workplace environment. But it, you're correct, there's equally a work, and this is why we have workplace experience in our, in our team name, because there's a workplace, the physical um, place that we construct, but then there's an experience that employees have when they're interacting with that workplace. So here we have um, a situation where we talk to our employees and we look at best practice design and active workplace design and we say, okay, we can offer this physical environment that is conducive to both physical and mental health, but we also have to make sure people engage it. And I think one of the biggest problems we've found, particularly with the sit-to-stand workstations, is that while people move on to a new floor, the engagement is fantastic, they love the sit-to-stand, it's a novelty, they use it all the time, and then within about a month or so, they, the use starts tapering off and now you can walk onto some floors and just see no one standing at any time. Um, so you're right, it's, it's, it's about how do we build in the incentives that actually get people to interact with the environment and the things that we've provided them to enable them to be their best self. And that's sort of what we're really learning at the moment and we're sort of looking at what technology solutions can we have that involve you know, wearables, that incentivise people to do to be active throughout the day and to use the sit to stand. Just we've just recently finished a much smaller fit out of 800 square metres down in Adelaide, and we've note, uh, noting that sit to stand problem that we had. Um, we've gone for a new product that has an app built into the computer, so they can actually plug it in their desk into their computer and set goals for how often they want to stand throughout the day or how many calories they want to burn and it sends gentle reminders throughout the day, it's time to stand now, it's time to sit down now. Um, so that's very early, that's effectively one week into that. But you're right, it's about, I don't think we'll move down, I'm not convinced we'll move down the path of actually having it in KPIs, um, but I think it's about incentivising people in other ways such as rewards, um, you know, you do your... 10,000 steps a day, you get a number of points and then you can redeem those perhaps at our um, AMP gym and that sort of thing. Did that answer your question? <laughs> so I just want to um, return to something we mentioned earlier, which is this idea of businesses and universities as landlords for food-based businesses um, and how that might actually look in practice. Because I know that on the University of Sydney campus, for instance, there are food retailers that are meant to be providing healthy options. And Ellie, even in some of the photos you showed, right, hiding them behind the chips and the chocolate, or having some kind of healthy leasing clause with no compliance mechanism is you know, probably not going to encourage them to uh, actually provide healthy options. So what would good healthy leasing requirements do you think look like, either Ellie or, or Tom, perhaps? It's, it's a great question and I think I draw parallels with the green leasing movement and it's more having the mechanisms within a lease that allow people, or f effectively force tenants and landlords to come together on a regular basis and assess what their activities are doing and how they impact on their targets. And obviously at the outset there would need to be some mutual agreements over what the targets are and what outlets are going to be targeted and what percentage of healthy food is going to be available. Are you going to follow the well-building guidelines that, you know, no more than 30... You can't sell things that have more than 30 grams of sugar per serve, these sort of things, and you agree to them up front, but you don't want a compliance mechanism that is reactive or... You don't, want, you don't want a compliance mechanism that cancels the relationship or ends the relationship. 
a more mature approach is for continual improvement and that goes for a lot of things in sustainability when it comes to green buildings but also sustainable supply chains and getting compliance within the supply chain. You want to make sure that you have a mutual, mutually agreed target and you're both working towards it. Yeah, I think in terms of leases, I think this is a really thorny area um, and I think that it deserves a lot more kind of um, scrutiny perhaps from um, some more commercial lawyers perhaps. So if there's any good commercial lawyers in the audience, please come and see me afterwards. So we've had some conversations with the powers that be around including healthy food clauses into um, leasing for food outlets on campus and I think the big challenges that come up around that are that it's seen as a kind of um, enforcing outlets to sell particular products which hinders allegedly allegedly hinders competition and retail um, and you know even the example was made about the cafe downstairs at the Charles Perkins Centre that if we were to ask them to swap their um, display cabinets around so you have the salads and all that fresh food that is actually quite nice at the front instead of all the pastries if they agreed to do that or it was included as part of the leasing clause um, but then they lost a lot of money as a result of it, then they could actually turn around and take the university to court. Um, that is what has been communicated to me and so we, we, we keep having these lots of different ways in which there are many barriers to including those things but what we really need is for someone to kind of just say, look, I think I've got a solution, can we test this out? But Lawyers are not big fans of testing things out because they need things to be very concrete and absolute um, with very little wriggle room. And I think that that's the challenge we always find is that when we, um, you know, us from the kind of public health side of things is when we're dealing with um, commercial companies, um, quite often they're 10 steps ahead of us in terms of um, making sure that there's no wriggle room. So even when we do, for example, include a very generic clause, there's many ways in which that can be interpreted. So that's how outlets get around it. Um, I think where we will probably go at the University of Sydney is New South Wales Health will be releasing some guidelines at the end of this year around food and drink provision in their facilities and I think what we are going to make the case for quite strongly here is that as a leading health and medical research institution which is linked to a lot of teaching hospitals um, and we have very lots of big partnerships with New South Wales Health and other health bodies, um, I think we're going to make the argument that actually we want those guidelines to apply here which um, talk to me maybe in 10 years time and I'll tell you if you know we've made a, you know any... Um, we've done any work in terms of that. So I think, and, and certainly those guidelines, not that I've seen them yet because they're still in draft format, but they will include things like hospitals not selling um, soft drinks, for example, which um, I think if you were to go out to Westmead Hospital, um, you know, you'd see Western Sydney as the kind of epicentre of diabetes, yet the kinds of foods that are sold and um, in those in the hospital is totally contrary um, to what we want to achieve. So I think um, I think maybe if we align ourselves with the health facilities and with New South Wales Health, maybe that will give us a bit more pulling power in terms of um, healthy leasing arrangements. The other thing is, like we did with the kind of smoke-free campus policies, we just said we are no longer selling tobacco products on university land um, and we will no longer invest um, in shares in tobacco companies or anything like that. So I think that that kind of decision from the top is really important. But I do note that I think it was 2004 there, were, there was a ministerial directive from the New South Wales government that said hospitals should not sell soft drinks. Now that was 12 years ago and I'm quite sure soft drinks are still sold in hospitals so even a good old ministerial directive or something from the Vice-Chancellor may not actually have the effect that you want. Thanks. Um, looking to the future I can see two different health regimes emerging. One for people who exist inside institutions and one for people who exist outside institutions. Um, and the greatest burden of obesity and ill health is borne not by people who work in insurance companies or universities, but who exist outside the protection of corporations and institutions. So I wonder if you could comment on that and about the disparities that might emerge 
in the future. Um, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, the disparity is huge. We see this all the time. If you go to rural communities, uh, far north, uh, far north um, New South Wales, you'd see this in um, you know, very poor communities where the choices are made for them. There's poor infrastructure. These are communities that depend on public transport to get to fresh food. Uh, the transport costs of getting fresh food out there are not worth the while for a retailer. Uh, I've spoken to retailers around this particular e example that we looked at fairly closely. Uh, the public transport is really poor. The uh, retailers are not willing to ship out fresh fruit there because it's not worthwhile. Uh, the, the fast food uh, retailers are all there and concentrated in one strip around around the community and around the schools. Um, yeah, it's, it's, there are, there's a structural disadvantage there. It's a kind of structural violence that uh, is related to poverty and social socioeconomic uh, disadvantage. And that I think is only, it's getting worse unless we do something uh, systematic about it. And I think that's, uh, on, that's a question for governments because it involves infrastructure and planning and ground up. Um, there are no easy answers, I don't think. And yes, the insurance companies are going to be increasingly looking at their employees. I think in the future there's a certain amount of surveillance going on about employers, employees and their productivity, linking, well, not well-being, just keeping healthy to incentive schemes and so on. So there's going to be, yes, the institutionalized and uh, those outside, and I think that's that is a problem. You're already seeing it. Um, I guess what I would say in response to that is I, ag I agree. I think one of the biggest, the most challenging populations to work with in terms of health in Australia are actually um, young adults who aren't in, who w they're nicknamed the NEETs, N-E-E-T, -E not in education, employment or training. Um, so those are young people who are really marginalised, who have left school but are falling between the cracks of different kind of institutional support structures. Um, so I think they're a really important population to work with. But then I also think about the people around them. So for example, your urban planners, um, your local government people making decisions around whether to approve um, a new Dan Murphy's in a really low income area. Um, I think all the people who make those decisions um, most often than not now have been on to do some form of higher educational training, whether that's through a TAFE or a university. So I actually think there is a really important role for universities and and vocational and the vocational sector as well in terms of having that reach of developing graduates who value health of people and communities as a, a really important graduate um, quality and skill. And I think the assumption has been that that's only important for people who are going into health or medical professions, but actually your teacher working in Mount Druitt um, you know, should have an understanding and, and a value of the health of, their, of the person there, the people they're teaching, the children they're teaching, as well as the communities that they're serving. I think that's the same for urban planners, for engineers, for anyone, um, not just for your doctors or your nurses or whoever. Um, so I think that's the kind of, the sort of six degrees of separation influence that I think universities and training providers do have in terms of health. And I think that that's how we need to, how we can make a difference in people's communities. Because at the moment, the people who are approving, for example, your West Connects, um, are not necessarily thinking about the health implications because maybe no one has ever sat down and talked to them or taught them about it in the, while they did their engineering degree at Sydney because there was this notion that actually you don't need to worry about health. Your main thing is to do X, Y and Z. These are the, the skills that we expect um, but health and well-being of people and communities and of the planet is usually not mentioned um, or very much in passing. So I think, I think Western Sydney Uni, for example, has been doing some really good work in terms of opening up higher education to people, but they've also been quite explicit in saying, well, we also need to be at the forefront of addressing these challenges that face our communities in terms of health. So that's probably what I would say in response to that, if that answers your question. Yeah, look, it's certainly an interesting one. How do we reach people beyond insurers and universities and that sort of thing? I, while it's certainly not <laughs> a silver bullet, but I don't think we should underestimate the um, 
the power of networks, particularly in superannuation and insurance, because, I mean, you only have to look around the number of people who do have super and potentially insurance embedded within their superannuation that they may not even know about, which is one, a challenge, definitely. Um, but two, what we're increasingly seeing is a more, more sh a shift in the market away from just a sort of set and forget about super and, and insurance and the role it plays in our lives until we sort of approach retirement where we go, holy moly, I need to get my act together sort of thing. Um, it's about how do we engage people and from our perspective, keep them as AMP customers in the services that we offer. But if people have insurance embedded within their superannuation, and again, this would only apply to people who have superannuation, can we reach those people with additional services as part of that life insurance product um, to potentially help them in their health and wellbeing throughout their life? Thank you very much for your question. Thank you very much for coming.